find in your Bibles Romans chapter 8. I asked the group to stay up here this morning. Aaron thought I was kicking him out, but we're going to be speaking this morning about our coming glory. And I want to read the opening verse before they sing. So if you'd look with me in Romans chapter 8. The song that they're going to sing, as you turn to Romans chapter 8, the song that they're going to sing, they introduced to us on Wednesday night. And I just kind of had it in, stuck in my head all week long. And I came to this passage and I thought, we, we need to hear that this morning. If you look at Romans 8, and I'd have you look in verse number 17, this is the passage that we come to. We're verse by verse in Romans, and we've come to verse 17. We, it says this, and if children... Now, that if is really a since. Are you glad that if you know Christ, you're a child of God? And if children, and we know the answer to that is yes, if we are in Christ, we are the children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But now it says, if so be that we, what's the word? If we suffer with him, that that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We're going to speak about that day. And they're going to sing about that day, on that day.
your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 8 as we speak about our coming glory on that day. Now, as we've studied the book of Romans, there are a few themes that we've covered. And in fact, in verse number 17, there's really a bit of a summary of those themes. Look with me at verse 17 again. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, that is accomplished because of the first theme of the book of Romans, which is that we are justified, you say it, by faith. We are justified by faith. We spent five chapters just making sure we knew that, rock solid for sure. That's not about anything we do. It is by the grace of God, entirely by His grace, and through our faith, by grace, through faith, that we are justified. And that makes us children, heirs of God. And then in chapters 6 and 7, in the first part of chapter 8, we saw that not only has our justification been accomplished, but then we moved on to sanctification. That we are being sanctified right now in this present day. That the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is making us more like Himself. We are being made holy in Christ. And so we spent the last several weeks speaking about that second part of our salvation. Justification, sanctification, and then today we will move in our discussion, this week and next week, and the rest of chapter 8, we will speak about our coming glory, and that is the doctrine of glorification. So if you'd say those with me just to make sure we're engaged, justification, sanctification, glorification. So the, our, the first element of our salvation is justification. That's followed up with sanctification, and then glorification. Glorification. Now notice something in verse 17. We're children of God. We are heirs of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. But you'll notice this. We still suffer. We still suffer. Troubles still come. Difficulties still arise. But not only are we reminded that we still deal with suffering, but we see that we suffer with someone. And who is it that we suffer with? With Christ. That our suffering brings us into closer connection with Christ because we suffer with Him. He suffered on our behalf on the cross, and then He is present with us in our suffering today. But there's a purpose for it. We still suffer, Christ suffered, but you'll see in the last part of verse 17, our suffering leads to glory. It is not purposeless, it is not meaningless, but we don't always understand the meaning behind it. It's bringing us to a place, and that place is future and eternal glorification. That as we suffer with Christ, we may also, we may be also glorified together. Now don't miss that statement together. Who is that together speaking of? Well, if you don't look at it carefully, you might think that it's speaking of together here, you and me, that we all are in this world together and then we will be glorified together. And praise the Lord, we will be together in that day. Do you believe that? That the family of God will all be together. But that is not the together that is being referenced here. Who is this together with? Jesus, because we are together with him in the first 
aspect is we are together with him in what? In suffering. But if we are together with him in suffering, we will one day be together with him in glory. Think about the humiliation of the suffering of Christ on the cross. We don't have time to speak at length about it, but just reflect on that for a moment. You think about the suffering that Christ endured on the cross and then the suffering that we are called to bear in this life. But then as ugly and as brutal as Christ's suffering on the cross, think about the glory of resurrection morning. Think about the glory of the risen Christ, of the champion of death, the one who was made in the likeness of men, as Philippians said, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Oh, but wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of, it's Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. The eternal glory of the risen Christ, that is what we're being reminded of here. We are told that the suffering of this life leads to the final part of our salvation, which is the eternal glory together with Christ. Glorification is the eternal exalted state of the believer. I have no glory of my own. You have no glory of your own. But Christ is all glory and all magnificence. And in the last day, we will sing blessing and honor and glory and power to the Lamb who was slain. And you and I will share in that glory of Christ. It's a remarkable truth. Sometimes hard to imagine. It seems fanciful and far away, but it's more present than we realize. It's a day that's coming. And what a day that will be. So I want to walk you through this glorification in really three parts that the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he would guide us this morning in the Scriptures. In verse number 18, you'll notice that suffering is compared to glory. And then in the four verses following, 19 through 22, we're going to see creation groaning in suffering. But then in the final part, verses 23 to 27, we will see the glorification of the sons of God. Notice in verse 18 now how he begins this discussion. He begins with an important statement. And he says this, For I reckon, underline, mark, or make a mental note of that phrase, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul says, I want to make a comparison. And in fact, he says, it is no comparison. And he begins with this statement, for I reckon. Not a word that you probably use that often, unless you're quoting some old-timey kind of uh, cowboy or something. I reckon. But the, the word reckon here is the idea of coming to a position after careful consideration. 
It's a, it's, a, it's a time of thinking. It's a time of contemplating. And the Holy Spirit has worked in the Apostle Paul, and he says to Paul, he says, I'm going to teach you some things about suffering. And what Paul had to do was he had to really slow down, and he had to let the Spirit speak. There had to be a careful consideration about the reality of the world. Haven't you found in life that people don't like to carefully consider the bad things that happen in life? We like to get through them. We like to move on to something more pleasant. Would you agree with me there? I mean, we spend a lot of time avoiding topics, avoiding conversations. Really interesting, uh, as God puts these things together, I was waiting in the welcome room just in between Sunday school and, and the morning service, and one of two of us were having a discussion, and the discussion was literally about death and suffering and understanding that someday, that, and, and just fear that can be there. I thought, wow, this is exactly what we're speaking about today. Well, the worldly mindset would just say, well, just don't think about that. And I understand that it's not healthy to dwell on those kinds of thoughts. But it is important at times for us to carefully consider. And that's what the Apostle Paul has done here. He says, I've considered this. But he didn't consider it with his own mind. It's the Holy Spirit who's spoken to him and given him a settled position and given him a settled confidence. And he says, I reckon I've carefully considered suffering and glory. And I've concluded this. First of all, suffering is present with us. We can try to bury our head in the sand, but at some point it rears its ugly head. And we, we understand that suffering and pain are real. And there are some people that want a form of religion that is just very shallow and superficial and just pats someone on the back and, and tries to say, hey, don't worry, everything will get better soon. That is not the gospel message. That is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that we will face hardships in life. Life is real. The difficulties of life are real. And God understands that. And so Paul says, I've considered this and we're not going to avoid it. We're not going to deny it. But suffering is present with us. But it is only for a present time. It is not for an eternal time. It is a present time. But he, and he said this. He said, suffering is temporary, he realizes, but glory is eternal. Suffering is temporary, but glory is eternal. And he says, as I compare the suffering that I've endured with the glory that will be revealed, the glory that is awaiting, he says there is no comparison. There is no comparison. If you were to take the scale of the sufferings of this present time and the eternal glory, and you were to put the sufferings on this side, and you were to put the glory of eternity on this side, there is no balancing of the scales because there is a far greater weight of glory that awaits us. Now, we don't always feel that. And this is an important thought. In the midst of it, we don't feel good. We don't feel the glory now always. But part of coming to the Word of God and listening to the teaching of the Word of God is to say, God, I may not feel it, but I believe it. I believe your word. I trust your word. He says that glory awaits us. 
There's a glory that awaits men and women. And it is a glory that is unlike any other, anything in all of creation. In fact, notice the last part of verse 18. They're not worthy to be compared which, with the glory which shall be revealed. The glory that shall be revealed. You talk about a big reveal. That's exactly what's the point here is that God is about to reveal something. There is coming a day where God is going to put you and me on display before the universe. You say, what do you mean? I mean, he's going to put us on display before creation. He's going to put us on display before the mighty angels. He's going to put us on display among all creation. You say, really? Psalm 8, verse 3 through 5. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. Do you understand what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, I look at all of creation. I gaze at the mighty works of all of creation. I see the stars. I see the heavens. I see the mountains and the majesty. And then I look at me. And I look at all the other people like me. And I'm just not impressed. Sorry. But you looking up here, you shouldn't be all that impressed. And I looking out there, I shouldn't be all that impressed. And David says, what is man that you, who am I? Some of you know the song, who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? Who am I? or the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Friends, we are the crowning glory of creation. You and I, humanity, of all of the wonders that God has created, he chose you and me to display his glory before all of the angels, before all created things. He says, I will reveal my glory in you. For which of the angels did Christ die? Not one. For which of the animals did Christ die? Not one. But for you and for me. We are his, crowned, are his crown jewel. Not because of us, but because he set his love upon us. Compare the suffering to glory, and the glory will far outweigh today's suffering. The second thing is, he dials in a little bit closer, and he describes that creation is groaning. There's a sound. There's a cry. There's a guttural moan that goes through all of the universe, through all of creation. Read with me verses 19 through 22 and hear the groans of creation. You'll see in verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature. Now, as you look at this, you see that phrase, the creature. It's, it's all of creation personified as being one individual. In fact, some translations, most translations, 
will put this as creation, abstract. But as I understand it, the point here is that all of creation as a concept is being personified as if it was one creative and created individual. And he calls that the creature. And he says that the creature has an earnest expectation, waiting, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity. All of creation made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22. Really, he's, in verse 22, he summarizes the previous verses and he says this. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. When he says until now, he doesn't mean it's stopped right now. He means to this very day. All of creation groaning. All of creation in pain. You say, well, how did this happen? Well, the fact is this. The Bible says, if you go back to the beginning of the story of creation, you'll find that when God created the heavens and when God created the earth, he looked out on everything that he had made. And God said that it was good. It was good. Every tree was perfect. Every flower with a perfect bloom. Every animal in perfect harmony with every other. No disease, no tragedy, no cataclysmic events. All of creation absolutely perfect. God said it was good. It was good. And then he placed his crowning jewel of creation, the man and the woman, in the garden. And he gave us a world that was oh so very good. But Adam and Eve disobeyed the command of God, and we come to Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 17. After Adam and Eve have sinned and taken of the fruit that they were forbidden to eat, God comes to Adam, and unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Because of the actions of mankind, of that first man and that first woman, because of the rebellious choice, we brought the curse, not just upon ourselves, but the curse came on all humanity. In fact, I didn't share this in the introduction as I often do, but this whole series of messages in the book of Romans has been about good news for a broken world. Guess what? The world is broken, guys, because we broke it. And we keep breaking it. And we break our, we, we've, 
Think about all that mankind has broken in this world. We've broken our relationships. We've broken our families. We've broken, we've broken governments. We've broken peace. And in many cases, we've broken the very environment in which we live. We're broken and we break things. All of creation is under the curse. And Paul says creation groaning. It groans. But it's waiting. It's this beautiful, this is a beautiful passage as creation is personified. It's waiting and watching. Cre creation is waiting and watching. There's something, I don't understand it, but there is something about creation that actually worship, worships God. I don't know how exactly it works, but Jesus said, if those people don't praise me, the, what's going to praise me? The very rocks would cry out and praise me. There is something about creation that can worship God. And so what happens here is we look at what's happening in creation. And it says in verse number 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth. It's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. All right, think about this for a minute. Do you remember before where it says that glory would be revealed? Remember that statement, revealed? If you circle that word revealed and then connect it down to manifestation, there is coming an ultimate reveal. And who is going to be revealed? We are. The believers are. And creation, he says, as creation groans under the curse, creation is waiting and watching for God to do something with us, with you and me, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Creation is waiting. Is it time yet? It's an earnest expectation. It's hopeful. There's a hope that what is now broken will one day be made right. Waiting for the sons of God. Then you see waiting for deliverance. Verse 20. For the creature was made subject, put under the obedience, made subject to vanity. What does that mean? There's a futility. There's a frustration to creation. I think about the, the frustration of, of creation. You think of things just in the natural realm. And one of the things that, that just always bothers me like it affects me emotionally in creation, is watching a tree die. Maybe you think I'm kind of... How many of you love trees? You're a tree person. You just, some people are like, yeah, whatever. I just love trees. And you watch it. And I used, to, I used to work for an arborist, and we would plant trees, and you'd go back. And you'd see those trees grow. But there's all, almost always a cursed tree a groaning tree. It's in the same ground. It's in the same, and, and that five years later, healthy tree. And maybe that tree was healthy last year, and you come to it this year, and it's late August, and all the, all the leaves have already fallen off. It saddens me. 
And that is the frustration of nature. That is nature being subject to vanity. And, and, and that obviously compounds in other scenarios. But you just think about the most majestic tree, most majestic dis- display is eventually going to become diseased or broken, the limbs are going to fall, and that tree will die. All creation subject to vanity, not willingly, but it was the decree of the curse. But not, not an eternally hopeless decree, not an eternally hopeless curse, but a curse that came with a promise of what? that the groaning of creation would be temporary. It says that they're waiting. It's waiting. Creation is waiting. Verse 21, because the creature itself also shall be delivered. Even creation one day will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain to this very day. Waiting in pain, the pain of death, the pain of decay, the pain of disease, the pain of disaster, the groaning of creation is felt by the farmer who plants a crop only for it to succumb to disease or drought or hail. The pain of frustration is seen in the raising of livestock only for that livestock to be infected with a parasite and to lose the herd. Throughout the centuries, as men and women have lived in in times less prosperous than these, these pains of of creation were felt even more uh, personally. As you would watch, as you would watch the effects of life, I've always been... It's always been another moving thing to come here in New England and walk through the old cemeteries. I mean, you've done that before. You walk through old cemeteries, and there are cemeteries going back to the 1700s, not very far from here. And you would see, you see the groaning of creation in those old cemeteries. As you see a headstone, and three or four little headstones, or just markers on the ground. All with different birth dates, but all with the same final date. You realize that people have endured the sufferings of this world throughout generations. Creation groans. It's waiting. But it's not waiting without hope. It's not waiting without a promise. In fact, there's something that You may have missed in verse number 22. We know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. Now, depending on what translation you're reading from, that phrase there, travaileth in pain, in more modern speech, it literally means birth pains. Birth pains. In your King James Bible, when you see travaileth in pain, that's a phrase referring to the pains of childbirth. This is not a generic kind of pain. And there's a beautiful, beautiful picture here. The picture is this. 
that as creation is personified, as creation is groaning, it's not a purposeless groaning. It's a real pain. And any of the ladies who've endured childbirth would, would say, yeah, you're going to say it? Yeah, it's, it's real pain. Let me tell you about it. But it's not a pointless pain. It's, it's not a pain that is, is just to be endured, but it is a pain that is going to deliver a new birth. It's a pain that is going to result in new life. And as all of the very birds and all of the very stars and all of the creatures and all of the, all of the crops, as all of creation groans, Paul says these are just birthing pains. They're great pains, but they're bringing forth new life. It's a pain that is real, but will give birth to a new reality, a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw a new heaven, Revelation 21, and a new earth. And that day, as the final cries of groaning come out, there's a newborn baby that cries. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. On that day, we will see him. Creation groans, but they're birthing pains. They bring birth to the new heaven, and the new earth, a place of no sorrow, no crying, no sickness, no death, no groaning. But once again, as in the garden, God will look at his new heaven and new earth. and Behold, it will be very good. It will be good. Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. And now he describes that glory the glorification of the sons of God. Verse 23. And not only they, so not only creation, but now he makes it personal and he applies it to us. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. I, I'm going to comment on that in a moment. So mark that phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit. But he says this, it is not only that is creation groaning, but he says we also groan. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. 
waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. You see, he says, today we groan, but tomorrow comes glory. Tomorrow comes glory. Look at verse number, look back with me at verse number number 23 as he describes our, uh, verse number, yeah, verse 23 as he describes our tomorrow. He says that with our tomorrow comes for the adoption. The adoption. Do you remember we spoke about adoption last week? If not, I wish I had time to explain that again, but basically the adoption in that culture was when the adult son was recognized as the heir. That we are now the sons and daughters of God. But there has not yet come the day where we have been officially adopted. We're born into the family of God. We are, we are by the new birth, the sons and daughters of God. But adoption day is yet to come. The day where we, and at our glorification, at that day where we stand before Christ with resurrected bodies, he says, this is my son. And in the Greek custom of taking that adult son and recognizing him as the rightful heir of all that the father owned, you and I will that day in eternity be revealed before all of the universe, before all of the angels, as the rightful heirs, joint heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. That is the glory that awaits us. The Bible says that there is reserved for us a crown of glory that fadeth not away, reserved in the heavens for you. Today we groan, tomorrow comes glory, the adoption and the resurrection. The adoption and the resurrection. He says that waiting for the adoption to wit, in other words, that is the redemption of our body. As Job said, though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God. That this body will be resurrected, will be glorified, and will be adopted as the son, as the rightful heir of the kingdom of God. That is the glory that awaits us. Today we groan, tomorrow comes glory, but then today we must believe. Today we must believe. He says in verse number 24, for we are saved by hope. We're saved by hope. Not a, as I like to say, it's not a hope so. Well, I hope this will be so. But when we speak of hope in the Bible, it's a hope that is so. It's a hope in the promise of God. It's a confident expectation that what God has promised, he will do. And he says we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, if God said, if God said, well, if you will just make a pilgrimage, if you'll make a pilgrimage, to this specific city or this particular location, and there I will let you see with your eyes everything that I've prepared for you. Well, if you could go and see it with your eyes, 
you wouldn't need faith. But what he says here is, we hope, we have faith in what we cannot see. Now faith, Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. We believe. We can see the trials of today, but we must have faith for the glory of tomorrow. If you believe that Christ has justified you, if you believe that Christ can sanctify you, you must believe that one day Christ will glorify you. And it's a hope that is patient. It's a hope that is patient. And you see that in verse number 26, five, verse 25. But if we hope for that we see not, if you're hoping in what you cannot see, then do we with patience wait for it. That word patience is the word endurance. It's a, it's a strength to endure. It's a strength to say that no matter what I'm called to bear in this world, I can do it with patience, with the strength of the Lord. And then we conclude now this passage with the most mysterious, in my opinion, but also encouraging passages in all the Scripture. He says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. We're talking about suffering. Paul says this, Consider your suffering in light of eternity. But the hope in our difficulties is not just hope that someday it will all be over. We have this great encouragement. And he says this, that the Spirit is here to help us. The Holy Spirit is the one that Jesus said in John 14, 15, and 16. The Holy Spirit is the one the third person of the Trinity that God promised would come alongside of us. The comforter. The Greek is paraclete. It's literally the one who walks beside. He comes alongside of us. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is present with us in our suffering. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you said, I don't even know how to pray about this? I am just so overwhelmed. I am just so burdened that I don't even know how to pray about this. This is what he says. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. What is the Holy Spirit doing for us? Well, the Holy Spirit maketh intercession for us. What, what, what is the Holy Spirit doing for us? Yeah, He's praying for us. The Holy Spirit is going to the Father 
on our behalf. He is the intercessor. He is the one that speaks our prayers for us. You say, I just don't feel like a very spiritual person. I just feel like life has got me overwhelmed. I don't think I can bear this. And we groan in our spirit. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit prays for us. This is, I, I don't understand this. I, you say, could you explain that to me? No, I, I can't. But by faith, we believe that in, in the, the very heaven of heavens, before the very throne of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Holy Spirit is interceding to the Father because of the blood of Jesus on your behalf today. Right now, he speaks for us. And if you give me this liberty, I think that if we would just quiet our lives a little bit, and I'm speaking to myself, if we would just slow down long enough, we might just hear him. We might just feel his prayers for us. I don't mean literally. I'm not saying that there's a secret door into, the, into that spiritual realm, but I am saying this, that as the Holy Spirit is pleading before the Father on our case in the midst of our suffering, that if we'd slow down long enough in life, and suffering is big and small. We suffer great hardships and trials and, and pains in our life, and then we go through day-to-day -day sufferings and struggles. But in all of that, the Holy Spirit prays for us. And I just don't slow down long enough to hear him speak for me. We drowned out those quiet moments. But nonetheless, the Spirit still prays for us. He still speaks for us. The Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. But it's not just the Spirit. You've got to look at verse 27. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. Who is he that searcheth? In, in this passage, just think about it with me. Who is he that searcheth the hearts who knows what is the mind of the Spirit? He that searches the hearts. In the book of, in the book of Isaiah, the Lord says, I know the heart. I try the reins. God the Father knows our hearts. So this is not a disinterested, dispassionate Father who the Holy Spirit comes to and says, your children are suffering, they need you. This is a fully engaged, loving Father God who knows the hearts and he says to the Spirit, how does this happen? I, can, I cannot explain exactly. But the Father, the Father, in a way, sends the Spirit and says, pray for my child. Pray for my son. Pray for my daughter. And the Father and Spirit, and you can't help but assume in the presence of the Son of God, they pray for us to give us their grace and their strength. Now, I know it's a little bit abstract. It's a little bit out there. But God help us with, with spiritual hearts and eyes, with spiritual understanding to really 
grasp and worship Him for, for, for what He does for us. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? God knew your pain this week. God knew your stress this week. God knew your financial struggles this week. He prayed for those. He interceded for you. I love how Jesus put it. And in this final passage, you'll see, you'll see some of all the themes come together. In John 16, Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye, he's speaking to his disciples, he says, ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall, re- excuse me, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. On that day, we will see him shining brighter than the sun when all sorrows are turned to joy. Do you know that Savior as your personal Savior? Amen? Do you know him? Has there been a time in your life where you've said, God, I'm suffering because of sin. I'm suffering because I'm a sinner and this world is broken, but I believe, Jesus, that you died for me. I believe that you promised salvation. I believe that you rose from the dead. Have you trusted that Savior? Not a church, not a religious system, but do you know Jesus? He said, one day you'll see me again. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you to do that this morning. Today, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, however good or sinful your life has been, have you trusted Christ? Would you do that today? And for those of us who have trusted Christ, boy, it's so easy for the struggles of today to rob our joy. So easy to forget that we are the crown, the crown jewel of creation. We have been created for eternal glory. Oh, the glory that awaits us. Let's live today in hope of that eternal glory. Just for a minute, please bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Just heads bowed, eyes closed, as we think about this scripture for just a minute. Just a minute. First of all, if you never have trusted Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you to do that right now. Please don't wait another minute. In your heart, would you just bow your head? Would you just, in your heart, pray to the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Oh God, I do know that I'm a sinner, but I believe that you died and rose again for me. 
And Jesus, I ask you to save me. I put my faith and trust in you alone. If you simply call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. Will you trust Christ today? But now for believers, would you just patiently trust Christ in whatever you're going through? We just have a quiet moment for you to speak with the Lord. Maybe just listen for his voice as the Spirit prays for us. Listen to the voice of God this morning as we just have a quiet moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the salvation that you give us through your Son. And we thank you that one day, Lord, we will spend eternity with you in heaven if we've put our faith in you. God, we pray that if someone here has, has not made that decision, that today would be the day that they would, uh, Lord, that they would accept you as their Savior, that they would realize they're a sinner, that they'd believe that you died for their sins and rose again, and they'd call on you to save them. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you in our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.